Hello from the Financial Times in London. I'm Polita Clark, and this is News in Focus, where we offer our insights into the stories that matter. First personal growth, then your partner, your spouse, then your kids, then your friends, then business. When you get to business, first purpose, then people, then product, and the profits will follow. So when I think of we, I think of an ecosystem that brings it all together. And the fabric of that ecosystem happens at the building, at the neighbourhood and at the city. That was Adam Newman, WeWork's founder and outgoing chief executive, whose workplace philosophy was at the heart of his global real estate company. But WeWork is imploding. Its recently launched IPO was quickly shelved and Newman is being demoted. Here to tell us why the shared office provider is in such trouble and what it means for property markets are Judith Evans, property correspondent, and Andrew Edgecliffe-Johnson, the FT's US business editor. First of all, Andrew, can you tell us what happened since WeWork launched its IPO this August? Uh, What didn't happen? Uh, I think in short, I would say WeWork went from this mythical unicorn valued at $47 billion to something looking a little bit more like a donkey with a paint job and an ice cream cone stuck on its head. Wall Street knew quite a bit about this company before it came to market. It knew it had this incredible valuation. It was one of the most valuable private young companies out there in the world. It was had this eccentric founder, this larger-than-life kind of visionary founder, Adam Newman, who liked to party but also had this great vision of elevating the world's consciousness. And it knew that somehow this company had sort of changed the way that we thought about office space. But it was always a bit fuzzy about the numbers. And when it saw the numbers in the S1 document that you have to file with the SEC when you're going public, they weren't much less fuzzy. So there was a kind of instant concern that the kind of economics was still a little hazy here. But on top of that, you had big concerns about conflicts of interest between Adam Newman and his other investors and about the governance or the lack of it at this company. Right, because originally his wife was supposed to have a say in choosing his successor if something dreadful happened to him, correct? Yeah, so we had a whole string of extraordinary governance oddities, like his wife being able to pick his successor in the event of his death, like the fact that he'd managed to take about $700 million out of the company, although that came out of our own reporting rather than any disclosure in the S1 document. And it showed all these relationships between the banks that were taking WeWork public and Mr. Newman himself and his company. It also showed that some of the numbers that weren't so fuzzy were pretty scary to investors, like the $47 billion of liabilities that this company has, and the fact that for every dollar it was making in revenue, it was losing a dollar. Right. So really, the IPO revealed a lot more about the company than the company itself intended. It's a funny mix of revealing a lot of things and obfuscating a lot of things. It didn't, for example, mention the fact this company owned a $60 million Gulfstream jet that Mr. Newman liked to take around the place. Some of that stuff came out from reporting in the FT and elsewhere. But I think it was enough for Wall Street to confirm its suspicions. And so essentially what flowed from that was major investors telling the banks that were trying to take WeWork public that this wasn't going to fly. They weren't going to buy into it. And so first of all, we saw... WeWork try and make a number of concessions on its governance arrangements. Second, we saw the price people were talking about, the valuation people were talking about, start to come down from the $40, $50 billion mark to the $15 to $20 billion mark. And then ultimately, the advisors and the company decided to pull the IPO altogether. And within a matter of days, Adam Newman had lost his job. 
Yeah, just extraordinary. Now, what about Adam Newman himself? What sort of character is he? And is he entirely responsible for WeWork's downturn? Well, I remember meeting a former WeWorker earlier this year when things were looking rather more peachy for the company. And he said to me, WeWork will succeed because of Adam Newman, and it will succeed despite Adam Newman. So he is this polarizing character who's a force of nature. There's no question that his sheer salesmanship has frankly revolutionized the office market in a way that many graybeards in the property business didn't think was possible. But at the same time, his excesses, his demand for control and for these weird governance arrangements is one of the things that freaked out professional investors and that made them unwilling to back this company, certainly at the valuations it was talking about. But I don't think you can say he's solely responsible for what's happened with this IPO. This was a company that was supported massively by SoftBank, one of the biggest investors out there in these private markets. And this company was brought to market by some of the biggest names in Wall Street, from JP Morgan to Goldman Sachs. Exactly. Actually, it's a very interesting question now about the role of the advisors and indeed SoftBank itself, really. I mean, are people reassessing its preeminence in this field of investment or not as a result of this? Well, I think what's become clear now is that that $47 billion valuation that was put on WeWork only at the start of this year was really the creation of one company and one man. It was Masayoshi Son, it was SoftBank and its affiliated vision fund. SoftBank put that last bit of money, that last round of private financing into WeWork at that amazing valuation only a few months ago. And really the fate of this company now is in the hands of SoftBank and its banks. The IPO was supposed to raise 3 to $4 billion from new investors, but it was also supposed to unlock a $6 billion lending package from the banks. $10 billion was at stake. WeWork is burning through cash. It now needs to raise that money from somewhere pretty quickly. And the obvious place is to turn to SoftBank, which is on the hook for a lot of money already and has put more than $10 billion into this company. It's got a lot riding on it for its own reputation and for the valuation of the funds it's already launched, the Vision Fund, and the second one it's trying to launch. So we are very much looking to see whether SoftBank tries to bail WeWork out at this point and what role the banks that were going to take WeWork public now play in extending further debt to it. Right. Now, on that debt question, Judith, Fitch, the rating agency, has downgraded WeWork's credit rating to C plus, which means the prospect of it defaulting becomes a real possibility. What will happen to all of the property owners if that happens? And what about the companies using the office space? Well, this is an interesting question. It's something I've been chatting to a lot of landlords about. And I think they're certainly making contingency plans for if WeWork stops operating some or all of its sites. A lot of them would just bring in another provider. Those have absolutely mushroomed in the wake of WeWork's own rise. So there's plenty to choose from there. And I think some of them are even getting a bit excited about the opportunity. Other landlords will step in and run the space themselves. Indeed, some of them foresaw this possibility and wrote into their contracts with WeWork that they would have certain rights to sort of take over aspects of the running of these spaces so that they could seamlessly take them on. So that would take care of them in the short term. There are a lot of questions in the longer term, though. WeWork has really expanded the market for these kind of short term leases, but it's kind of unsure at the moment how much of this space the market needs. WeWork also has a really distinctive brand and style of decorating these offices. A lot of its tenants are in kind of small offices in glass partitions. It's a very specific style. So in the longer run, presumably that would change. And so there would be a lot of questions for 
where those spaces end up, even if for the short term most of them continued running. And how much property does WeWork actually account for? It has a huge amount, especially since SoftBank started putting as much firepower behind it as it did over the past sort of four or five years. So it has more than 500 locations in 111 cities in 29 countries. So across the life of its leases, a lot of which are quite long, like 15 or 20 years, it has committed to pay $47 billion in rent. And how much of that is due in the next year or so? Well, some academics at Harvard Business School have said that WeWork will owe more than $2 billion next year. That's in rent and other cash commitments. Obviously, rent is the lion's share. Fitch, meanwhile, has said that it has enough cash to last about four quarters. There are analysts who have slightly different roles on that, but certainly there are a lot of obligations coming up. Now, one of your stories recently Judith said that WeWork accounted for one in 10 square feet of new leased property in London in the first eight or nine months of this year, I think it was. So even if it survives, what impact could its problems have on the wider property market? Well, WeWork has said that it's going to slow its pace of expansion. It's had voracious demand that looks set to no longer be the case. And there's a pretty sort of hot debate going on in the property industry at the moment about how much impact that will have. I mean, one in 10 is obviously significant, but it's not the lion's share of the market. On the other hand, analysts say that in certain markets, in certain big cities, WeWork has really been sort of the marginal tenant in the sense that particularly if you had existing space and the tenants were moving out into shiny new buildings, WeWork would often be there to take over that existing space. So a couple of analysts I've spoken to have said that this could expose some sort of underlying weakness in those markets. One of them particularly pointed to New York and Washington DC as where, you know, it could really take some of the energy out of the market. There's also a question of what happens with WeWork's rivals because the sector as a whole has really expanded. We've seen some other big investors pump money into other shared office companies. There's a question mark around whether they also will be expanding as fast if, say, banks become a bit reluctant about lending to the sector. So if someone in the FT was shifting to open up a bureau somewhere around the world and they were thinking of perhaps taking some space in a WeWork office, what would either of you be advising them to do? I think... There's still an interesting case for WeWork from the user's point of view. If you take that example of the FT correspondent landing in a city where they may be the only correspondent or one of just two or three, you take a desk or three desks in a WeWork and you're instantly plugged in to what Adam Newman would call a community. You know, you get to meet the startup people, the people funding those startups. And you get to just run into interesting people by the very nice coffee machines. So I think there's still a case from the tenant's point of view. The tenant is not taking any risk. And one of the things that alarms other investors about WeWork is it takes the risk of very long-term leases, you know, 15-year leases or something. As we said, $47 billion of commitments that it signed up to. And then it signs these very short-term leases with the tenants who can leave at uh, the drop of a hat. So from the FT correspondent's point of view, I don't think very much has changed here. From the landlord's point of view, from the investor's point of view, a lot has changed. Right. And they are still talking about trying to revive or resuscitate an IPO sometime in the future, I think, correct? That's right. And I think... It's not going to happen 
soon. They were talking of trying to get this back on the blocks by the end of the year. That really looks thoroughly unlikely now. It really, as Judith said, depends on the cash burn, the, the obligations they've got coming up in the short term, and frankly, whether they can get enough new cash in in that period. I haven't spoken to anybody on Wall Street who isn't advising this company who thinks that an IPO is looking very likely anytime soon at all. I think there's a lot more expectation that this will have to get sorted out between SoftBank and the banks for a period before this company can even think of going public again. And just finally, Judith, is WeWork really an outlier in terms of its business model? Does it have competitors that are expected to fill the gap that it's now left? Well, in most ways, it's not really an outlier. There's a company that's 30 years old called IWG, better known as Regis, which was its name till recently, which pretty much runs the same model. What WeWork has done is market it differently and brand it differently. So it's become much more mainstream. It's no longer about these dingy locations on the outskirts of cities. It's these real buzzing places right at the heart of where it's all happening in London or New York or whatever. But of course, lots of other competitors have caught on to that, including Regis itself, which now has a sort of trendy brand called Spaces, which is quite similar to WeWork. So there really are a lot of competitors. And I think some of them certainly see an opportunity in what's been going on at WeWork recently. Well, thanks so much, Judith and Andrew. And thanks for listening. Don't forget, if you missed our episodes on microbial food or Shakespeare's links to Merseyside or European rules on hate speech, you can find them all on the usual podcast platforms. 